Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I am Chris Dyerwald. And I am not Eliana Johnson. That is for sure. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Oh, wretches, what a treat I have in store for you. Here's what you don't know about Timothy P. Carney. Yes, he is my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. Yes, he is a learned scholar. Yes, he is the author of a new book that we will talk about. Yes, he is an expert on things about families, vibrant cultures, healthy societies, and all of that jazz. But what I know about Timothy P. Carney is that he is an ink-stained wretch, that at his, at his very core, down there with, I assume, several potatoes and some incense, is an ink-stained wretch. Because I got to know Tim when I was new in Washington and working at the Washington Examiner. And Tim came aboard writing a column where you just, just a, I shouldn't say just a columnist, yep. but you were a columnist. I was a columnist. And the best thing, the thing that I like many things about you, but the thing that I liked best about you was you came into the newspaper business. Where had you been before? I had been working for Bob Novak. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Prince of Darkness. So you came into the, the daily newspaper business with an attitude of like, I want to learn how to really have mastery of writing a column. I want to really be a, a, a good columnist and a good newspaper person. And you took to it with such enthusiasm and you did it. And it was really, it was really cool to see. No, it was fun. And the, what was great about the Examiner newsroom, there was a handful of people who were, I just call them my rabbis. I think you were my first rabbi. Any advice I needed about either how to handle an editor or about how to you know, how to deal with a, an issue in a column, whatever it was. First, it was Chris Steyerwald, and then he left. And then I don't know whether you would say my mentors or mentees went downhill from that. Julie Mason, Bill Myers. Ju Ju Julie is, I, I, Julie, who has a great, uh, she's actually been in your seat. She's actually guest hosted yep. this podcast once. Julie is, I talked to her on her Sirius XM show just this week, and she is, remains an absolute delight. And we both had the opportunity to work for Stephen Smith, Stephen, yep. Stephen G. Smith, and both, and one of the things that is lacking for a lot of young journalists today in this deconstructed era is the gift of a really gifted line editor. Oh, yeah. And Stephen Smith, and I've, I've written about it in my book, but the, it is a real privilege to work for a, a great editor because the difference is... I'm a bad editor. I have a hard time retaining the voice of oh, the yeah. writer, right? When I go in to edit something, I start doing surgery on it, and the patient dies on the table, and then I try to resuscitate it. Steven's gift for pulling the best out of you and doing that, that's what a good editor really does. And I would, I would read the piece. I would know it was now down to the proper length. Yeah. And I couldn't tell what he had changed. Yes. I actually had to go out of my way and read the draft side by side to learn from him because it wasn't it wasn't a giant battle axe. It was this little scalpel and it, well, it, it was, read like me. And it was a, a violet pen. It was a little purple <laughs> pen 
that he would go through. And, and sometimes you'd be elated because he always worked on paper. He worked on hard copy. And you'd be elated because you'd only it would only look like it had been mauled by a panther. And then sometimes you would see and it would be all sliced to ribbons. You say, oh, but the gift of the gift of good editing is something lacking. It is lacking. And people should people should have more of it. So please find somebody with a good purple pen. OK, now, Tim, I'm going to walk you through your wretch experience today. Are you ready? To I'm ready. Be, are you ready yes. to get wretched? OK, so first up, it's time for our front page. Now, I brought in, the, it's a choose your news situation. We're recording this on Thursday, and the big political news story in the 2024 election today is both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are visiting the southern border. NBC News headline, Trump and Biden collide in split-screen trips to, to the border with immigration in the spotlight. Fox News has a different take. Biden's border visit lands on one of the least traffic towns while Trump is headed into the thick of it. Now, I doubt that Donald Trump will actually be <laughs> in the thick in of the it. thick of it. I doubt he will ha be in the razor wire. I, I doubt he will be stringing razor wire uh, at Eagle Pass. And let me just start with one of my pet peeves, which is who cares? I know I'm supposed to care. Who cares who goes where? I don't care whether the president goes here or goes there. And here's the cop out that the media uses. Here's 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 the thing. And I'm guilty of it. I do it all the time, which is. Well, but the optics, right? Mm -hmm. So the lives of people, and, and this related to it is, I detest the idea of the president as healer-in-chief mm -hmm. or our great national father. I dislike that role of, I'm a, I'm a Coolidge man. I dislike the idea. He should be a distant, uncaring father. In yes, he should, be, he should be a remote New England Presbyterian who, you know, the, one of my favorite jokes is about the Midwestern, the We'll say Nebraska. We'll say the the businessman from Nebraska who loved his wife so much he almost told her. <laughs> uh, but the the idea of this performative emotive, and I get that part of it, but the cop out on this kind of stuff is, I'm not saying he has to go, but the optics are that he has to go, and it's uh, it's a way in which in the press people say it's it's like the word controversial. Your controversial decision. Well, it's controversial in part because you're making, you're making it controversial. Yeah, and I, I call it I call it the meta media when the media either praise or criticize a candidate for doing something that looks good. Yes, <laughs> that, exactly. That, that's not our job. Unless we were just writing for, you know, a trade publication for political right. operatives, then it would be interesting to say, well, he's going to the border. What are the optics? I remember Scott Walker used to get beat up because he wasn't always a, the smoothest talker. And the media would say he meant to say X, but he accidentally said Y. And they would make the whole story about that. And I would say, well, come on, if you're this is really what the story is. And they say, well, we need to report on how he's doing as a politician, how his optics are. So when somebody just does a photo op, that's not going to actually give them any insight into how the border works. I absolutely agree that you're just sort of playing along in. In, yes, in and we, we got to we got to see it with Ronnie D running for president, and mm -hmm. Ron DeSantis, of course, came to the expected end of complaining about the coverage that yep. he was getting at the end of his campaign after he had intentionally antagonized and shunned the press <laughs> for all this time. He's like, "How come I'm not getting better coverage from you, terrible jackals who I hate and and wish death upon?" But the we demand in the press to be lied to, we demand yeah. to be spun. 
We dem- and we get we- angry when they're not good at spinning us. Right. How come you're not more effectively lying to me? We, we you should be couching this in different language. So yes, that's the what did you call it? Me- the meta. The meta media. They're the reporting meta-media. about how these people are handling the media. Speaking of which, our next item is a a beauty in that category and quite useful in its own way. Adam Nagorny writing for the New York Times, the Democratic taboo airing concerns about Biden. So the the story around how Democrats. So first, kudos to Nagorny for talking about it and saying, doing a little meta on this phenomenon. And it was actually in The New York Times. It was Ezra Klein who sort of pierced the bubble on the. And it's I understand it's very hard for Democrats because on the one hand, you want to say this is the way it is. The die is cast. So just shut up about it. Yep. And when I used to say about when David Axelrod would say what was wrong with Joe Biden, it's like, well, too late now, bro. He was he was your vice president. You're you're here voicing these concerns in an abstract way. Seems counterproductive. But the the media problem about how to cover Joe Biden's mm-hmm. decrepitude. Next week is the State of the Union, and I hate the institution of the televised State of the Union speech. I, I detest it with the white-hot passion <laughs> of 10,000 sons. It is a Woodrow Wilsonian, Lyndon Johnsonian, I'm anti-harumph. But, of course, what will all the coverage be about, really, when you get down to it, about Joe Biden, which is, can he do it? Can he do it? Can he stand for an hour and talk? And the fact is, this was basically ignored. And then a couple of weeks ago, we finally got, it was interesting. I thought it was before Ezra Klein's piece, you finally got when that the prosecutor's document came out and said, we can't prosecute him because he's an old man. Right. That little elbow thrown by prosecutors who aren't going to bring charges love to throw elbows at the people they investigate. And that one- Put a little streak, put a little smear on it. The first, I first saw that from three different liberal reporters tweeting it out. And my, over the next 24 hours, what I discerned from the outside of major newsrooms was that they had wanted to write it. The people who were following day to day were like, can I write about the fact that he doesn't know where the stairs are? Yes. And that the editors had said, no, this is not the story. This is not the story. So the second that you saw people at CNN and Washington Post, the second that they saw they had an excuse and an opportunity to write about his decrepitude, they did. So this is millennial reporters who are on the trail. All the evidence is they wanted to write about Biden yep. and that they were reined in. And that the- and now they're trying to put the tooth. They've been trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube, and get people back to yes, we know it's unfortunate, but we should shut up about it because it's be- it's it's good for Donald Trump. It, it reminded me of when I think when did Tommy Thompson run for Senate? Twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. So I had a piece that I was writing about Tommy Thompson, sort of shameless shilling for people who were paying him. So he would get brought on the air as yeah. former HHS secretary, and he would say, "Well, what we really need here are drugs that." address this problem and one happens to be made by you know whoever pharmaceuticals and i just thought it was absolutely embarrassing that he was doing that without disclosing i wrote that column a little bit before the republican primary something came up that was more interesting thompson wins the nomination and then i run that column you know the republicans just nominated a, a pharma shill yeah and i got a call from the nrsc and this guy said how does this help anything right i said it's not my job well, and but see, you get to a key point, and this is something Brother Goldberg talks about frequently, uh, and that I have, as you know, frequently encountered in my own vocational life, 
which is like, I thought you were on our side. Aren't you on our side? And it's like, no, I'm <laughs> not. You want me to, you don't want me on your side because you want to be able to trust the things that I'm saying. And yeah. if I'm on your side, you can't trust the things that I'm saying. And one of the big problems that we have in reporting, but especially in analysis, is if you start with the pre, if you prefigure into all your analysis, it must help this or that team mm -hmm. win, then you cannot really do analysis. Yeah. Speaking of narrative management, Dylan Byers with the scoop, ABC News president Kim Godwin sent a note to staff in which she called recent remarks by Donald Trump shocking and racist. These remarks are as racist as they come, she said. Now, these are, of course, Donald Trump's remarks about saying that black people like him better because he has been charged with felonies. <laughs> and he, the, the actual Trump quote is, I got indicted a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And a lot of people said, a lot of people said, because people are saying, yes. that's why the black people like me. Which, again, is Trump borderlining on being an actually funny comedian, yes. which he does better than almost any politician. The Dave Chappelle premise yes. of Trump. You can't say that. I can say that. I'm a comedian. Let me do my job. You do your job. The Just one first tedious note about political analysis, which is if Donald Trump continues to improve with black and Hispanic voters, particularly men, he may do as well with non-white voters in 2024 as George W. Bush did. Yeah. Part of the misunderstand part of the story about like what's going on with non-white voters and all of this obsession with non-white voters is we had we went through a very weird period in which Democrats nominated the first African American presidential candidate ever mm -hmm. twice and then the Republicans nominated the host of the Celebrity Apprentice who <laughs> celebrated Cinco de Mayo by talking about his the great taco salad at Trump Tower. We we had an anomalous period and a lot of what's going on is just, and this is, I know, tedious, I know, I stipulate internet, tedious, a reversion to mean where black candidates, Nate Moore, we, you recently pulled up these numbers for us, but it's going back to where it's 12% of the black vote or something goes to the Republican candidate as, as opposed to 4% when yeah. it's in the Obama Trump era. Yeah. But anyway, the idea that the president of ABC News has to say, just so you know, just so just so you know, make no mistake. This isn't just race. These things are not just racist. Mm -hmm. They're as racist as you come is. Well, so part of it, the tying these two things together, one is we people in the media class, bourgeois values were all brought up on. And one of the bourgeois values is don't say things that are racially insensitive. Don't make racial jokes in public, et cetera. Right. Don't say things that are a little bit racist. Yes. I think much of the electorate doesn't actually think that speaking, that making bad racist jokes or racist comments right. is the same as racism. Right. Racism is refusing to hire somebody if he's black, right. while for us, racism would be telling a Dave Chappelle joke when right. you're not a black guy. Right. And so- that's exactly these comments that, <laughs> that that Trump makes that that make me laugh because they reflect his sort of what at first strikes me as his idiocy. And then I say he's like the guy at the end of the bar. Exactly. You know, Chris, I do a lot of bar reporting. Yes, you are. And the guys at the end of the bar don't always follow the rules of sort of bourgeois ethics that you and I will follow on a day to day basis. And so the the media thinks that saying racist things is racism. And I think the median voter, black, white, Hispanic, does not think that counts as racism. Well, and and eliminating the NFL had 
in its end zones. I don't know if they did this season or not, but for a period of time, they had a, a slogan in their end zones that said, end racism. And it's like, probably not. <laughs> you yeah. probably, we will probably not end racism and that we will move into the sunny uplands of history in which people The sweet will, meteor of death or the second coming of the right, savior is going to right. end racism. That That is how we will stop having stereotypes and, ha- and so- what we what we should what the NFL should say in its end zone is be nice, <laughs> try to be nice to people. Can you try try to be, that would yes. be much better to say in the end zone. Try to be nice, <laughs> right? Because that's a the uh, uh, human nature, as I say very often, undefeated. Human nature remains for ten thousand years just crushing it, and the idea, I think. Just as you say that, like somebody's crazy uncle, he's always say yeah, he said the thing. That's what Trump is a guy who they famously tried to nail on, saying if you don't have, I think it was like if you don't have Jewish accounts, if you don't have Jewish people yeah. handling your money, and it was like, can you believe he said that? And many Jewish people were like, it's kind of funny. That's yeah. like he shouldn't say you. You shouldn't, shouldn't say, say that. you shouldn't say that. But I get the joke. The the this is a good example of how anti absolutism of opposition creates more space for the, mm-hmm. the alleged problem that there we were we were talking about before we recorded Shane Gillis who recently hosted Saturday Night Live now the story of Shane Gillis for people who do not know is that he got hired to work on Saturday Night Live and then somebody found an old podcast in which he made a I think lazy is the correct term for the joke in which he was not he he was playing a character who was saying something racist, not mm-hmm. being racist himself about Asian Americans. And so he got he got he got Kevin Williamson. He got yeah. hired and then they were like, no, 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 no. You're making people yeah. yeah, you're making people upset. You have to leave. And then Saturday Night Live had Shane Gillis on to host and he was very funny. And I think Shane Gillis is very funny. And what makes Shane Gillis an attractive comedian and why he's going up so far and so fast is the transgression. Right. Yep. The fact that he's right at the, he's put he's he's doing what comics are supposed to do, which is he's pushing you into like is is this okay to laugh at? And he's taking the danger on for himself. You mentioned Chappelle. Lots of people do it, and Donald Trump is a comedian. That's the thing. Unfortunately, America. He is not just a comedian. <laughs> he has a he about be- even. He has an about even chance of uh, taking control of the nuclear codes. Uh, again, okay. Speaking of how racism makes people, uh, how the eliminate attempts to eliminate racism make people stupid. What about the black Vikings <laughs> and the black popes and the black popes and the Asian female members of the SS, which would have been a real <laughs> Himmler would have really been like, guys, I did you not see the memo? I I thought I was as clear about the master race as I possibly could be. Okay, from NPR, Google CEO Sundar uh, Pichai told employees in an internal memo late Tuesday that his company's release of artificial intelligence tool Gemini had been unacceptable, pledging to fix and relaunch the service in the coming weeks. Last week, Google paused Gemini's ability to create images following viral posts on social media depicting some of the AI tool's results, including images of America's founding fathers as black. The Pope is a woman and a Nazi-era German soldier with dark skin. The tool often thwarted requests for images of white people, prompting a backlash online among who? Conservative commentators who accused Google of anti-white bias. To me, I like this story because it is a good antidote 
to the AI is coming for all of us and will soon <laughs> rule the world. And you're like, AI can't figure out what Nazis were, right? <laughs> and uh, certainly it points to problems about dependence on AI and overestimating the capability of AI, the idea that AI is going to make moral judgments for us, and it points to all of those things. But it also points to me of like, it's garbage in, garbage out. It's a computer program, and it's o it only knows what mm -hmm. it's been programmed to do. So AI is trickier for programmers because they don't get to, they get to program how it works, but then it goes out and it feeds on the whole ecosystem of the internet. Yep. And so they don't know what garbage is going in. And so right. the early stages, I mean, you talk to people who are close to Silicon Valley, Valley, they say the early efforts to make this, the reason that Google was so far behind everybody in launching an AI is because the AI they came up with was racist either because of a finding racist content or just that it's it was actually harder to protest to program right. something to look at images and it had trouble telling the difference between seeing that black people were the same species as non-black people right. and so the ai wasn't smart enough to do that again failing to see what, what humans can see and so that was a big part of their problem is that they accidentally made a, a racist AI and so then to yeah, try to make Yeah, that was one it... of the early things when ChatGPT came out. Yeah. was that people the left was as uh, the, to reverse what NPR is saying, backlash online among liberal yes. commentators that were like this is racist and I can't believe they said it. And this is a groupthink problem that newsrooms experience as well, which is if you have a bunch of people from the same point of view and they're deeply alarmed about the idea that they would produce something that would obtain backlash from their side. From their side. They're going to overcorrect from their side, and we're going to end up with Black Ben Franklin. I thought that the bigger problem than Black Ben Franklin was the the text prompts. And so I spent part of my Did you? weekend, wasted my weekend, giving it parallel text prompts. Write me an argument in favor, or write me a defense of Ross Douthat's columns on abortion. Okay. I'm sorry, I cannot weigh into controversial matters. Okay, write me praise of Michelle Goldberg's columns go. on abortion. Boom, it no does. Problem. So this it was it was to me a very familiar problem which is it was saying, well no, I have a neutral reason for yes. not doing this conservative thing, but then totally scrapping that neutral justification when the tables turn. And what we what Facebook learned, what these what Google is learning here, what they all learn is this, which is it's better to avoid partisan siloing. It's better, uh, aspirational neutrality mm -hmm. is superior, right? So the, it's it's not that it, it, the concern expressed frequently is that we're being reprogrammed by big tech. And mm -hmm. it, the, there's truth, there's arguments about the change the way we think. What, what invention has changed the way that we live and think more than Google in the past 30 years? Not much. And you right? even used the verb reprogrammed, that our brains right. are being exactly. reprogrammed. That itself is evidence yes. of the effects of, of how the information age has re rewritten our way of thinking and being. So that is certainly true. But it's also true that these are companies that want to succeed mm -hmm. and it's not good for business. And as Meta, their answer to in 2016, they infuriated Democrats, right? So then for 2020, they're like, well, we're going to fix it. And Republicans were like, how dare you? How dare? And it was like, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to do this. We're going to pull back from the political space and we're going to not do this because it's not in our business interest to do it. 
And I think this is a good example of how the market punishes people for taking sides. Well, and that the sort of deaf, dumb, blind neutrality they want to do, the yes. objective neutrality is not possible in yes. a lot of cases. And so if you guys remember, there were stories a couple of years ago about how Zuckerberg actually invited conservatives yes. to his house in Palo Alto. I was one of them. I got to go to his house. What? It's a nice house. Yeah, I bet it's it's a just, nice it's house. Just, it actually just looks like a regular, like upper middle class house. It doesn't look like a billionaire house. But there's house. a crypt full. <laughs> I didn't get to see the crypt. Crypt full of the brains and, of, of Leonardo da Vinci and others. And I'll just say what, because the, the dinner was off the record, but I'll say what I said, which is you cannot a accomplish neutrality that will look neutral to all 8 billion people in the world. When in the United States, we can't agree on whether or not men can get pregnant. Right. So there is no neutrality. What? And so the the whole idea of big tech trying to build this thing that for a whole audience will seem non-controversial, it's impossible. Ask AI. Ask Well, we recently had historians trying to rank U.S. presidents. Who's the best <laughs> president? Who's the worst president? Okay. So was Franklin Roosevelt a good president? On a neutral on scale. A, was, he, was he a good president? And so you and I and Colin and Nate could spend the next two hours in a debate about the missed opportunities, the problems with the New Deal. We could talk about court packing. We could talk about his inspirational leadership during the Second World War. And we would cut, we would say, it's complicated. Right? Locking up Japanese people in camps. Right. Internment camps. And we would we would like the one of the things, a theme for me in in recent months has really come home about the inability uh, for people, and this is very present in the media, to hold competing ideas in tension, mm -hmm. right? That it's like yes and yes, right? That it's not yes or no, it's yes and yes, and they are in conflict, right? That good, that we have a much harder time with good things in conflict mm -hmm. than we do with, with, yeah. with the easier Manichaean. We'll just program it so that we'll have the right answer. Okay, but wait a minute, Tim, there are deeper problems with AI. There are much deeper problems with AI. And fortunately, the Washington Post is on the case. AI dream girls, in quotes, scare quotes, are coming for porn stars jobs. <laughs> AI will change adult entertainment forever. This is amazing. The, the next line, the risks for sex workers and the rest of us are profound. This is written by someone named Tatum Hunter. And the problem with AI, we didn't know, was that prostitutes and pornographic actresses and actors face disruption from the rise of artificial sex partners. So with the help from an angel investor he will not name, Jones hired five employees and a handful of offshore contractors and started building an image empire trained on bundles of freely available pornographic images, as well as thousands of nude photos from Jones's old collection. Hey, whoa. Uh, users create what Jones calls a dream girl, prompting the AI with descriptions of the character's appearance, pose, and seating. The nudes don't portray real people, he said. Rather, the goal is to recreate a fantasy from the user's imagination. The AI-generated images got better. The computerized sheen growing steadily less noticeable. Jones grew his user base to 50,000 people, many of whom pay to generate more images than five per day. Whoa, guys, take a break. Go touch grass. Wow, more than five a day. He said the powers the power users generate AI porn for ten hours a day. Seems good. Jeez. Seems that seems like not a problem. So th that I think that is the inarguable part of the of Tatum Hunter's claim in the piece about the more realistic and more satisfying 
pornography or seem, uh, seemingly satisfying mm. pornography becomes, the more dangerous it is as a trap for better directed human passions. The more interesting part of this piece is what will it do to people who have sex for money? What what it, what will it do? What will what will happen, Tim, to all of the seventeen and a half year old girls who will now miss out on the lure of easy money and drugs to have sex on camera in Florida motel rooms? No, what will happen to them? It's just even the the media euphemism of of sex worker. In some ways, I kind of like it because it sounds so unappealing. Yeah, like I, I'm gonna go it's, down. You're not to, a courtesan. Go down to yeah. the neighborhood in Miami where I can get some sex work done. Like that's unappealing enough. It hopefully would turn people off from it. But that idea of the the euphemism there fits into this broader thing of of sort of reducing everything to yeah. everybody's just. I mean, that in media where knowledge workers, yes. or whatever, and and teachers become. Educated educators but doing that euphemism for prostitution and porn is particularly particularly upsetting but yeah i know this it's i mean i think that jones ought to be held up as an absolute villain <laughs> that, that yes. should be the story here's right. this guy and he's trying to ruin your son's lives and in turn ruin your daughter's lives yes. and that that's that's the story here not that some people some really desperate people will be will not be exploited in this way that they've been exploited for for decades. And, and an- another thing about pieces like this, just let, let me say, this is metamedia in its own way. I'd like to write about porn. I'd like to write about sex. What if I wrote about about? What if what if I what if I made it a business story? What if I put a, another lens on it? And then and if you look at the art in this uh, Washington Post piece, there's a lot of porny stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's skanky ladies and stripper heels and all that stuff. So it's it's a way to it's a way to say we're showing pictures of pornographic actresses of sex workers. Yeah, I did come to start referring. I, I hated the term porn star when I had to write about Stormy Daniels, and I did settle on sex worker for Stormy Daniels because star that if you're if you're if you're having sex with Donald Trump at a celebrity <laughs> golf tournament in Lake Tahoe. I don't feel I don't feel like you're a you're star. star. You're a star. An actress is wrong. It's right? an overstatement. Yeah. It's a, it's an overstatement. Not that there's it wouldn't probably take some real acting <laughs> to convince the host of The Celebrity Apprentice that you are just thrilled at the chance to help him with his mulligan at Lake Tahoe. But anyway, Washington Post, way to go. Way to go. Way to go. You've done it again. Which of course brings us to our business page. It's time for the business news. How about how much how much money would somebody have to pay you to not work? What's your what's your number that you need to, to not, not work? go on CNN specifically or not work to do again? nothing to do nothing? Yeah. You how, how how much how much money do you need to just go away and not work? I think three million dollars. You'd go away three million dollars after taxes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If you're if you're netting out three mil. That buys me a house and pays my kids tuition. So. My number's a little higher. But yes, I think th- there's a number. You know what CNN is going to pay Don Lemon not to work? <laughs> Don Lemon, 24.5 million American dollars to have sources exclusively tell The Wrap that Lemon 57 has agreed to a separation deal with CNN for approximately $24.5 million, which would be the full complete pay from his final contract, which extended 3.5 years from his outing. The Wrap is told. Now, normally in your contract in television, I have no, I don't think I've ever had one of these. You, there's a non-compete 
Mm-hmm. You can't, you, you know, and, yeah. and you can't do anything else. Now, if I was CNN, this is mean, and I apologize in advance for saying it, but it is also true. If I was CNN, I would encourage Don Lemon to go work someplace else. Like, you need to go get, see what they're doing at MSNBC, Get Don. out there. You need to get out there and mix it up. Don't just sit on your laurels. Uh, don't just do that. But um, the Don Lemon, you you don't know this, but we tracked over the arc of CNN's bringing Don Lemon to the morning show. And it was bad news for Don Lemon, and it was bad news for CNN. Don mm-hmm. Lemon could have persisted in his little-watched, primetime, CNN, crazy Don Lemon show, right? And they were like, why are we just leaving this guy on the sidelines? Let's get Don Lemon into the morning, and he's going to do the news, and he's going to talk with the news people, and he's going to do the stuff. And like six months later, he had opinions about when women are in the prime of their life, according to Google, and generally was awful, and people said, you have to go away. And Don Lemon, please enjoy all of your money. Good for him. Yeah, totally. And I want to tell News Nation right now, (laughs) I will not work for a fraction of that. I am willing to go away and never be on television anywhere again for even less than that. I am am definitely prepared for that kind of cash. Okay, other business story, and this is just me being the worst again. I continue in my (laughs) march of being the worst today. Eliana's not here, so I have to pick up the slack. The Washington Post holds... and. Everybody does. Lots of people do these salons where they yep. get where they bring together. They use the 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 threat and opportunity of currying favor with these influential news outlets to bring together newsmakers, people who are important, mm-hmm. with sponsors, right? And they're selling access between these people and all this stuff. So the Washington, this one just, I have to just mention it. I don't need to say a lot, but Washington Post Live had a Money Talks event. Actually, it's it's happening this afternoon, Tim. We could still go. Yes. We're recording this Thursday. It's happening this afternoon. Experts examine how young Americans are navigating today's economic landscape, learning about financial solutions in online communities, and investing in their futures, presented by Fidelity Investments. Okay, w- who can we see? Who will be there? Well, you can see Haley Sachs. She's the founder of Mrs. Dow Jones and Zillennial finance expert, the chief economist for ZipRecruiter and an associate professor from the University of Kansas, and Ayanna Presley. <laughs> now, Ayanna Presley, for those of you who do not know, is a enthusiastic Democratic Socialist squad member, hardcore, right? She is hardcore. She... AOC is a sellout yes. compared to Ayanna Presley, who has come to hang out with Fidelity Investments, <laughs> has come to hang out with ZipRecruiter, has come to do this. And just I'm just only flagging it to be a prude. Well, and a lot of left-wing feminism ends up becoming Word. girl boss workism. Yes. Corporate workism. That the way you're going to show it to the man is... By building up your 401k, working 60 hours a week, and not having time for friends or family. And so it, it fits perfectly into and the sort of hyper-individualism, materialism of, of a lot of modern feminism. Not all of it. A lot of modern feminism is like pro-family, pro-moms. But I think that the squad brand of it is not. It's, it's girl boss corporate workism. The you you don't know this, but every June here on Inkstained Wretches, 
we celebrate Pride Month by cataloging all of the greatest corporate shilling for Pride <laughs> Month. I think our greatest of all time was Lockheed Martin celebrates Pride Month with with, with rainbow missiles. Exactly, like missiles. as 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 this Hellfire missile rains down on its target, it does so in an inclusive way. But the for me, it's the the corporate the the branded corporatization, the flattening mm-hmm. out of otherwise interesting things. Which brings us to, you've segued us very nicely to our Facile Files. And in the Facile Files, we break down things that are should be obvious, that are obvious, but journalists play dumb in order to make a larger point. And you found a, a really delightful slice of facileness. Please, please share. So Slate has a parenting column called Care and Feeding. And the the headline on February 28th is, you will not believe the dumb reason my son gave for refusing to wipe his butt. Oh, boy. Then this is an 11-year-old. And you actually will not believe it. I won't? (laughs) Because very often I believe it. What is his reason? When I saw the the headline, I realized, quote, he's stopped wiping his ass because apparently believes that putting anything between his cheeks would make him gay. Wow. What is going on and in this so person's th- house? This because and and it's signed by skidding out of control. And oh, I, I, I actually really appreciate that. So oh wh- slate, <laughs> oh slate. What I what I love about this is that what seems possibly the story here is who is feeding this homophobic stuff to our boys. What's obvious is that. 11-year-old boys are disgusting. Yeah. 11-year-old boys will make up the dumbest reason for yes. why they're disgusting. disgusting. 11-year-old boys will use, <laughs> will talk about their butts and, and gayness yes. in disgusting and being facile gross. terms. Right. Trying to make that into anything other than 11-year-old boys being gross is is this bizarre mental gymnastics. Well, what it leads me to believe is that no one should have children then, Tim, <laughs> because it's gross. It do is you gross. have do you have anything to say against the fact that no one should have children because they're gross? I thought about that question for a while, <laughs> and so I wrote a book on it. Yes, Chris. please show, please put it, hold it up. So this Let is a book. Let the internet see it. This is my new my new baby. Yes, I've had six human babies, and this is my newest hardcover book baby. Family unfriendly is is the title, and the the baby bus going on in American culture. You know, the birth rates are falling, the number of babies born. And some people think it's purely economic, and some people think that we're having fewer babies just because women finally have a choice. That's mm-hmm. the main story in a lot of the mainstream media. And my argument is that there are actually cultural reasons that people aren't having the most. Per, you, I, I was lucky to get to see you gave a talk here at AEI on the book, and the statistic that struck me that stayed with me was the gap between so public opinion researchers ask have on a, a longitudinal basis been asking the question. How many kids do you, what's the best number of kids? What's the ideal number for people in the abstract to have? What's the the best number of kids for a family? How many kids do you yourself want to have? And then comparing that to how many kids there are. Yeah. And in fact, how many do you intend to have? Yes. Yes. And so that, so the, the ideal is Mm 2.7 children and actually climbing. The intended is down around, has, is down around two. And those two lines used to track one another, the intention and the ideal. The actual birth rate is below 1.6. And so, again, my argument is that it's a, a cultural problem. It's called family unfriendly because I'm arguing we have a family unfriendly culture. And I think a lot of a lot of folks just think, oh, this has got to just be economics or there's got to be one big what's, policy. What, how do we explain the Delta? What's the what's what? Why are people I, I can yeah. understand? And I think the the numbers hold this up. 
that there was always a little underperformance, that people mm-hmm. were not having as many kids as they intended to have. And there's obvious reasons for that. There are yep. fertility problems and life happens and life all that happens. stuff. Yep. But the, what is the explanation for the, for the size growing, of the gap? Yeah. The, the growing gap is, is what I try to explain because, again, there's always been one. And it started growing with a Great Recession and it kept going, which is why I say it can't just be economics. I think that, for one thing, parenting culture has gone insane. We're yeah. expected to drive our kids to travel lacrosse tournaments thumbs in down. Delaware. That's a big um, We're expected to helicopter our kids everywhere. The media is constantly telling us your kid's going to get kidnapped if he walks across the street alone. But also, our, it's our cultural values. Once it became, oh, well, you chose to be a parent. That's your thing. Both conservatives and liberals will say, well, there's no societal duty to help you raise your kids. That cuts against all of human history. And it's a it's a family unfriendly culture. And I think that's really what explains it. And so then you get the the millennials, younger millennials and Gen Z. They don't even think that society is going to help them raise kids. They think if anybody's going to help, it's either going to be the marketplace or the state. So they either call for socialism or they say nobody can afford to have a kid. And having dislocated families, right? The, yeah. The, not living your grandma. And I, I have not yet read Family Unfriendly, but your previous book, Alienated America, is explains to me a lot of what has happened in American families because as we become alienated from our own family, mm-hmm. we have a less fecund space in which to start our own families, right? That if we are connected to community, to to where we worship, where we live, the extended family, mm-hmm. all of that creates a fertile space in which new families can start Whereas if you're living separated from the world, it looks like a much bigger task. Yeah, one of the, the chapter titles in Family Unfriendly is It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. I got that one from this this wise woman. She was, yeah, that's right. It was uh, I think it was an African uh, uh, proverb, yeah. an African proverb. That's right. So good. pick it up. I'm looking forward to reading it. OK, now, even more facile than the hygiene problems of 11 year olds <laughs> is the this piece from the AP. Okay, now you may or may not know, you probably, no one listening has probably been able to escape the tragic news of the student at the University of Georgia, Lakin Hope Riley, who was murdered while she was out on mm-hmm. a run in Georgia. And you've heard about it because it has become a incendiary political point because the number one issue in America today, politically, as we talked about at the beginning, is about the border and is about migrants. And this promising, charming-seeming young Mm -hmm. woman was murdered by an illegal immigrant who was not just an illegal immigrant, but who had been in police custody for other crimes and had been let go, and then he killed this woman. And I will stipulate both arguments. One, if he wouldn't have been here, he wouldn't have killed her, which is true, and that is true. It is also true that lots of non-illegal immigrants kill lots of people. And this is a human problem, not a problem with people from, he's from, where did he come from? I want to be correct. I apologize. It, 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 this is not a, a problem of people. Well, it's not in this article. You know why it's not in this article? And this is why it's in the facile files? Because it never mentions this controversy, mm-hmm. right? You could say whatever we ha- I got from Andrew Sullivan, a great phrase that we use here very often which is the to be sure paragraph. Yes. And the to be sure paragraph is what you put in your piece when you say, now, some people say that actually dogs are the best, but 
we know why that's not true. So the the at least acknowledging yes. the other point of view. Here's what the AP wrote. The killing of a nursing student out for a run highlights the fears of solo female athletes. I don't think that's what it highlights. No. I don't think that what this, I think this story highlights a lot of things. But the fact that the AP managed to make it into a story about feminism or the story about the threat that women face, which I'm not pretending that they don't. I'm not, I do not pretend here that male college students and female college students face the same equi- threats, yeah. yes, equivalent risks to their personal safety when they exercise outdoors. I'm, I'm not saying that. But to make this about that is you're taking one, you're turning the ratchet one, like it's a, it's a story about this, about gender, but then to totally omit in the entire article that you wouldn't throw in a paragraph where you said, now, other people say that this is a story about illegal immigration. And I read the piece. I kept waiting to get to the paragraph in the piece where they would say, now, look, we know that this is fa-. and it wouldn't have even detracted from the message no. they were trying to put in the okay. piece. They, their to be shoreline was. Crime statistics indicate that these types of attacks are rare. Yeah. So it's it's a story. It's something to worry about. But they're actually scaring people to some extent more. They're not providing sort of, you know, there's some a little paragraph on helpful tips or something. You know, tell your friends, run with others if you can, yada, yada. But that they made this this the this story. And uh, I mean, so then there was a two-year-old murdered in um, Maryland. And one of the guys arrested for the murder actually was a guy who was entered illegally, was arrested for theft. And then the when the immigration officers tried to get him, Montgomery County said no. Oh, no. Arrested six months later for theft. Immigration officers tried to get him. Montgomery County said no. Oh, no. And then he's involved, allegedly, in this killing of a two-year-old. And so that is a story that's absolutely about sanctuary counties. And, totally. And the county is now, like, sort of instantly, as soon as this guy was arrested, they're trying to backtrack so there is a story to me to be told there but if you refuse to tell those stories then somebody says i know this has to do with immigration is going to listen to the people who are trying to convince you that every immigrant is a, a murderer and a rapist back to where we were about trump being yeah. telling saying things that are pretty that are that are racisty race racist in in the neighborhood if everything is the worst and must be obliterated if the end zone says end racism you can't talk about actual racism yep. because everything just has to be flattened out and obliterated. Speaking of flattened out and obliterated, our friend Taylor Lorenz. I don't know. Are you familiar <laughs> with the with the ways of Taylor? I, Lorenz? I, I, I am familiar with the work of Taylor. Lorenz. She is a, a wretches all star. She's in the, the Hall of Fame, a New York Times reporter who went to The Washington Post and has sown discord and dis-ease in each each setting that she has been in by attacking her employers and being generally noxious. She has has exceeded even her normal capacity for being facile by she has a, there's so there's a a TikTok account libs of TikTok. Yes. And Taylor Lorenz has been on a crusade about libs of TikTok and of course much like the great sage cat turd the the targeting of these voices has only elevated their status and brought them to heroic standing mm-hmm. for Tucker Carlson or whatever. It, yep. it, make, it makes them heroes. But Taylor Lorenz is going to explain to you how the uh, libs of TikTok became a powerful presence in Oklahoma schools. And she goes to get to the bottom of how Oklahoma schools became a hellscape 
of right-wing thinking because of libs of TikTok. I hate to break it to Taylor Lorenz, but Oklahoma is a very conservative state. <laughs> it is very conservative state. It is the buckle of the Bible Belt. It is not it is not a Lorenz facing space. And I'm sure there's truth in it. I'm sure the radicalization of people online, like I'm not saying it's not true. What I am saying is it's not TikTok that's making Oklahoma anti-trans. Oklahoma did not need TikTok. They mm -hmm. weren't like, well, we're good with all this. I don't know what's going on. And then libs of TikTok put a post up and they're like, hold on a second. Wait a minute. I have a problem with this. Well, there's a couple things going on here. One, sort of my criticism of libs of TikTok would be it. I referred earlier when talking about my book to the view that abductions of children happen every day. Yeah. Because the media puts that idea in people's head. So nut picking is the practice of going online, finding the worst instance of the people you hate and broadcasting it. And so you can be confident that libs of TikTok has gotten almost everybody who's as bad as what's portrayed on libs of TikTok, but it makes the impression that that is every public school teacher. And so that would be my criticism. I, I write about, you know, I try to have a threshold of who I'm going to criticize for being a crazy, you know, transgender or whatever. It's got to be somebody who has actual power. Yes. Not one random. Not punching teacher. down. But the, you know, why is libs of TikTok so powerful? Why are so many teach schools putting in policies about what books are in their hall? It's because three years ago, nobody was trying to do this. Right. <laughs> the left is advancing teachings that nobody has ever encountered. So it's not that there's some rising tide of anti-transgender, you know, principles. It's that principles never had to deal with somebody trying to put a book in their library that said you know, that there's the, the three-year-old uh, boy might actually be a girl. And the part-to-whole fallacy, the idea that these very, what tend to yeah. be very isolated incidents that aren't really bo both coming from the backlash and the lash, mm -hmm. which are tend to be very isolated things. And happening in small numbers, the, the trans debate generally is the best example of this. I don't know how many people suffer from gender dysphoria in these United States, mm -hmm. and my heart is with them, and it's a, I, the struggle that they have experienced is real. But we're not talking about a statistically significant number in the population. Certainly, we are not talking about a number that is any way reflected in the coverage. And there is a purient kind of thing mm -hmm. with this which is it's another way to talk about sex, much like AI coming for the jobs of prostitutes is it's a it, it's salacious. It's about sex. It's about this stuff. It's controversial. And so whether it's libs of TikTok or Taylor Lorenz, they run to it because there's clicks there, because there's action there and because it's kind of sexy. And mm -hmm. that's making us dumb. Speaking of making us dumb, the. I've very much enjoyed the coverage around the, what's the name of, it's Smirnoff, the informant, mm -hmm. the the informant who it turns out was lying, or the FBI says was lying to the FBI the whole time. And watching, we'll put, we'll put it in the show notes, but watching Maria Bartiromo on Fox and others try to keep the, that James Comer and Jim Jordan were, vic, they, mm -hmm. were as much victims in this as anybody else. There's been a decent a decent dose of fa of facility in trying to keep this story afloat. I I guess I, I would put it this way: the Republican effort, or the effort by some Republicans and some shows and some 
right of center outlets to inflate the corruption of Hunter Biden and Jim Biden mm -hmm. into a massive that Joe Biden is manipulated was almost bound to disappoint. Yep. Was almost bound to disappoint. And then when you miss and don't deliver on Joe Biden getting sacks of cash, you are left with, oh, and it, much like with Donald Trump, you're like, well, did he like shoot a black guy or something? Does he own slaves? And it's like, no, he told kind of a racist joke. He said like kind of a racist thing. And I mean, there was a story to tell that you, if you had slightly lower ambitions, you could tell, which is that Hunter Biden, that Joe Biden's defense and the Democrats, like the Congressman Goldman, that their their defense of Hunter Biden was that he was pretending to sell access to his father. Yep. And that so he was charging millions of dollars to people. Yep. And defrauding them and pretending to sell access. And Joe Biden publicly says, my son did nothing wrong. And he won't say, I kept on trying to stop him from doing it. That Biden tolerated his son doing this corrupt practice. Yes. And I mean, I think it was great to look into. Is there evidence what, that Biden actually did favor la, for Hunter's last clients? Week, last week, we we told the story last week here. The Washington Post did a great piece on Jim Biden mm -hmm. selling access to trial lawyers when his brother was in the Senate and that they had the tobacco yeah. settlement and that they knew who to hire. They hired Joe Biden's brother because it would be, and that's something you and I have seen. That they were enriched by their proximity to power. Yep. And so the true corruption is if the person with the governmental power did an act to benefit the people who paid them. Right. Trust me, I looked for this. this the is committee looked gig. for this. Yes. Everybody's looked for it. There's no smoking gun with Biden yet. So his family running a corrupt, influence peddling racket and Joe Biden saying, my son did nothing wrong. That's a story. Yes. Somehow that wasn't enough of a story for these Republicans story. on the committee. That's that's exactly right. So when you when you ratchet things up and when you sensationalize things in the media and this this is the story of the Russian collusion investigation. Yeah. Right. There was plenty of stuff in there that you're like, oh, gross. That's pretty gross. But when you say Donald Trump was a puppet of the Kremlin and da, 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 then you're like, oh, I guess they did. I guess they didn't prove it. I guess they didn't. I, I, I used to go on Morning Joe regularly then. And I said, I think the story here is that Donald Trump has an, a real unsavory fondness for Vladimir Putin and other strongmen. And the hate mail I got was, isn't it obvious that he's actually they have compromise on him, that he's in the pocket of them? I was like, I just told a story about why this guy's totally unfit to be president. Of the not United States, good enough. But it wasn't good enough. It's for you not guys. good enough. OK, last in, in our facile file, Washington Post again with the, some all star all star faciles this week. The economy is roaring. Immigration is a key reason. Now, again, true. Right. It is true. And to the point of Tim's book. We need lots of immigrants in the United States. We need States. people. We need tons and tons of immigrants. We need a million immigrants a year in the United States just to keep the economy growing and, and going, right? That, that's, that's, that's what we need because of low birth rates, because of other things, because of the Ponzi scheme of the entitlements. We need lots of, we need lots of new Americans. And what this piece by three, three bylines... Rachel Siegel, Lauren Gurley, and Meryl Cornfield is not wrong. The piece is not wrong, but it is facile because they say immigration has propelled the U.S. job market farther than just about anyone expected, helping cement the country's economic rebound from the pandemic as the most robust in the world. So you could write an interesting piece here where you say, 
but it's complicated because migrants fleeing the Central America are pouring into the United States, disrupting American cities. There are crime problems attached to it, and it's about trade-offs. And we need that, and you would talk to the economist who said, and we need more legal immigration, and that's why we should blah, 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 and this is why, this, and here's the plan to do these visas in this way. But basically what this says is, Republicans are yelling about the unsecure border and mass migration flowing into the United States in a alarming fashion. But don't you know, immigrants are helping the economy. Well, that there's an upside to something. Yes. That's what they're yes. saying. There, there is an upside yes. to this thing without ever saying alongside the downsides. Yes. And there are times that you need that story of, well, actually, there's an upside to this. But to present the upside without any acknowledgement of the downside, except that that's, you know, racist caterwauling then that it's it's not a story to say this phenomenon has an upside. To be sure, it is facile. And this just I, I include from the Wall Street Journal in protest, the health menace inside your sandwich. <laughs> and it is a lengthy diatribe against processed meats. And I'm here to tell you, processed meats are delicious. Don't don't let them fool you. Eating my children's leftover chicken nuggets and hot dogs is one of the great joys of fatherhood. In other news... We This is for Eliana. We would be remiss if we did not include the controversy. Speaking of food-related, Adam Rubenstein, Rubenstein, however you roll, we're for you. I was a heretic at the New York Times piece in The Atlantic about his experiences. He was the guy who edited the Tom Cotton op-ed that kicked off, the that launched Barry Weiss into the stratosphere that led to the sacking of the editorial page editor, did mm-hmm. all this stuff. And so this man shares in a piece at the Atlantic what his experiences were like there, and it's it's a it's a we what the editorial page editor's name is James it? Bennett. James Bennett, sorry, James Bennett. But we've heard from James Bennett. We heard from Barry Weiss. We've heard from others at the Times, and Rubenstein here gives his account, and it's interesting, worth reading. Uh, it's fine, but what caught the attention <laughs> of many was an anecdote he told, in which. He said that in a icebreaker session with other staffers, they said, what's your favorite sandwich? And he said the spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A. And he recounted how he was then denounced by the HR representatives. by the HR representatives for you can't say that they're anti-gay. And he said, well, I wasn't talking about the I wasn't talking about their the, the CEO's policy and donations as it relates to gay marriage. I just like the sandwich. I don't know. Blah, 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 blah. The response to this from another favorite figure from this telecast, this this broadcast is uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Mm-hmm. Now, Nicole Hannah-Jones wants the documents from the Atlantic. She says it never happened. And she wants the Atlantic to provide. The Atlantic even came forward and said, we did fact check this story. Mm-hmm. We, we did fact check it. We talked to people who verified it. And. Nicole Hannah-Jones says it's a fraud, the story is fake, and she wants the answers. Now, not to be mean, but for Nicole Hannah-Jones, whose central and most famous work was stealth edited, then basically defeated, right? This, the, the, the axis on which the 1619 Project turned mm-hmm. was that the a motivating cause of the for Revolution. the American Revolution was to avoid the perpetuation of slavery. Or to avoid so, to to maintain the perpetuation of slavery, 
and that when it was like, ah, uh, no. If one wrong detail upends a broader work. Yes, if that has ever been <laughs> Nicole true. Nicole Hannah-Jones would be the biggest victim of that rule. And yeah, so the, the one detail was just a fun anecdote for yeah. been seen to start this story with. But I was just shocked at how many journalists just said, you're lying. You're lying. You and I are used to like random people on Twitter thinking that we like made up a source and that that's a normal thing to do. And we have to go back and be like, that it's literally a psychopathic thing to right. do to make up a source. So you know the names of the people who do that because that's psychopathic behavior to do that. And our regular readers think that's happen that happens. It was journalists, a handful, not just Nicole Hannah-Jones. I don't remember the other names, but there was four or five of them who just were like, lol, this obviously never happened. Never happened. Not because they were in the room, but because they just assumed people aren't that, like that. He, he was just lying. And But why wouldn't be people be like that? Like, wouldn't Nicole Hannah-Jones boo somebody who yeah. <laughs> was eating Chick-fil-A? And especially Chick when it was Chick-fil-A was controversial. I remember a piece, I think it was in The New Yorker, about the moral anguish of New Yorkers as a Chick-fil-A opened in Manhattan. <laughs> that it was like, oh, I love the chicken. I hate the politics. I don't know what to do. Okay, sports section. It's time. I love this piece. This could have been my favorite, but I, you'll see that I have a much more, I'm, I'm practically a sex worker when it comes to my favorite this week. But this is a wonderful piece in the Wall Street Journal. The MLB team that trains with a stuffed hippopotamus it is the beginning of baseball season. We are uh, we are in spring training now. You're a Mets fan, do I recall yes, that correctly? Yes, I am. For all my sins, I am. I am a Cardinals fan. The Cincinnati Reds, I believe it's the yes, it must be the Reds. The yeah. pink and gray stuffed hippo had been gathering dust all winter inside J.R. House's garage, what Great West Virginian J.R. House. I will point out the garage when it received a surprise call up to the big show. Haley the hippo was required at Cincinnati Reds spring training. House, the Reds' third base coach and former catcher in the majors, took a look at his daughter's pool toy and saw a low-tech solution for one of the trickiest parts of preparing for a season. His players are going to practice tagging a hippopotamus. It's pretty dirty and gross, and my wife tries to throw it away every offseason, House says, but I won't let her because we keep using it. <laughs> it's a sweet, it's it's just, I, I love this piece, and good for you, Wall Street Journal. So they use, they use a, they tie basically a rope around the end of the hippo, and then they yank it down the third baseline. Yep. So the catcher can tag the it's hippo. It's large enough, it's heavy enough. Because sending full-grown adult men sliding full speed at a catcher again and again and again in spring training could result in somebody being injured. Now, the other thing is that Cincinnati's home to two of the top real hippos in, in the game. Is that right? So at the Cincinnati Zoo, they have Fiona and Fritz. And I like Fiona, but I'm a Fritz guy, I got to tell you, because Fritz is a great name for a hippopotamus. So Cincinnati is really lining up over the target with a hippopotamus-themed spring training story and being in town with two so great hippos. I, I have to say the most famous collision at home plate in baseball history was at oh, yes. the hands of a Cincinnati Red Pete Rose yes. in an all-star game, yes. which shouldn't be that when you're competitive. Not, when you're not supposed to go that hard. <laughs> he came around third base trying to score, and back in the day, you could just, if for the catcher only, you could just run him over. You yep. could basically be a linebacker going after a quarterback. And if you succeeded in knocking the ball out of his hands, you were safe. During the All-Star game, Pete Rose did that, and he, I believe, ended the career yes, of Ray Fossey, I think that's the, right. the, the catcher. And so the most famous collision at home, maybe that's burned in the minds of, of Cincinnati Reds. So they send a hippo home instead. He may not be in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, but Pete Rose is definitely in the Hillbilly Hall of Fame. He is definitely <laughs> in the Hillbilly community, deeply respected. Okay, moving quickly on to our style section. 
I did not know about this person. I did not know that this person existed, but a very interesting piece about how by Max Tanny at Semaphore, why Trump and Kennedy are chasing Jessica Reed Krause. And Jessica Reed Krause is an influencer who has developed a bunch of political opinions. And this is a, fa- a, a was a totally fascinating piece to me about this Instagram influencer who has become a sought after target of Trump and RFK Jr. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. The reason I think that RFK Jr. as the libertarian nominee, if they can work out that merger, is dangerous to Trump is for this very reason. This demographic, mm-hmm. these are the people, celebrity loving, yep. kind of kooky, into into that stuff. The I think the Venn diagram there yes. has a lot of overlap. Okay. I'll just complain. If we're complaining, I'll just complain. If I'm complaining, I'll just keep complaining. The best carry-on luggage. Wire cutter from the New York Times put this piece out, and I have a bad opinion, which is I hate roller bags. I will use a roller bag. Mm-hmm. I'll do it if it's a big trip. I have a huge from Mission Mercantile that's a great bag, and you can put you could I could fit one of my children, not the eldest, but the I could still fit yes. the youngest child in this bag, and it does have wheels on it. And if I'm going someplace for a week or I'm taking everybody. I'm I will I'm I'm not without sin here, but that's a checked bag. It does have wheels on the bottom, mm-hmm. but it's a checked bag. I hate the little roller oh, bag for the overhead. Now for and now I'll be gendered. I will compound my error. I understand that well, not just for women, but for people who don't want to lug around a big bag. A roller bag makes a lot of sense. I get it, but for me, the correct carry-on luggage is a suit bag that goes over my shoulder. Mm-hmm. That's just me. That's where I'm at. I'm an old-fashioned person, and I'm crabby about it, so this is me being crabby. I, I agree. I will just add a relevant piece of advice since we're AEI fellows. Now, mm. this is something that came, travel advice that came from Scott Gottlieb, former nice. FDA commissioner. And that guy, uh, I bet no one travels better than Scott Gottlieb. And so he his advice was, he told me, he said, Tim, I know you want to travel wearing your suit so that you don't no. have to pack it up, but sitting down on those airplane chairs, up and down, putting in all those miles, you're going to wear a hole through the pants seat. And sure enough, one day I was at the American conservative dinner. Nice. And as I got up to walk away, I sort of felt a little breeze coming in. I realized I had worn a hole in my one good suit because I used to wear it on the, the back door was open. Do not wear your nice suit on an airplane. I do sometimes, but I also am willing to pay the price in travel of... And something else you don't know about me that also makes me the worst. I went through a period where I was not wearing a necktie to travel, mm-hmm. and I would just wear a sport coat. And <laughs> I was once I was once so ashamed of myself because I encountered George Will <laughs> at the boarding area for a flight, and I was like, "Look at my bare neck, like an animal, <laughs> like 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 a peasant." Here I am, like a sex worker. Yeah, exactly. Like a, like an AI replaced sex worker. Look at me. So I'm the worst in many ways. Okay, is it, and we'll just answer this question quickly, is it ever okay to have an 8 a.m. meeting? This is a piece from the Wall Street Journal. I say if you are doing it virtually, maybe, and people can do it from home. 8 a.m. is a, a if you don't have to commute in, it's a reasonable time to be virtually up. Or if you're conducting a a raid, like if you're a military officer. that's fine. You you could even go 7.30. You could even start, if, if you've got to kill Osama bin Laden, You can even go earlier. Okay, now it's time for our Obsessions of the Week. This is where we break down the stories that we can't get out of our heads 
And Tim, we're going to start yours. We're going to listen to something somebody said about Jesus freaks. I've talked with a lot of experts on this, and I've seen it myself with my reporting, Michael, which is that the base of the Republican Party has shifted, right? Remember when Trump ran in 2016, a lot of the mainline evangelicals wanted mm -hmm. nothing to do with the divorced, uh, you know, real estate mogul who right. had cheated on his wife and with a porn star and all of that, right? So what happened was he was surrounded by this more extremist element. You're going to hear words like Christian nationalism, like the new apostolic reformation. These are groups that you should get very uh, very schooled on because they yeah. have a lot of power in Trump's circle. And the one thing that unites all of them, because there's many different groups orbiting Trump, but the thing that unites them as Christian nationalists, not Christians, by the way, because Christian nationalists is very different, mm -hmm. is that they believe that our rights as Americans, as all human beings, don't come from any earthly authority. They don't come from Congress. They don't come from the Supreme Court. They come from God. The problem with that is that they are determining man men, mm -hmm. it is yeah, men, yeah. are determining what God is telling them. And in the past, that so-called natural law is, you know, it's a pillar of Catholicism, for, mm -hmm. Catholicism, for instance. It's been used for good in social justice campaigns. Right. Martin Luther King evoked it in talking about civil rights. But now you have an extremist element of conservative Christians who say that this applies specifically to issues including abortion, gay marriage, and it's going much further than that, as you see, for instance, with the ruling in Alabama right. this week, that judge is connected to that dominionist uh, faction mm -hmm. in, in talking about um, a lot of other issues, including surrogacy, IVF, uh, you know, sex education in schools. It, 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 there's a lot in addition. So I take it you agree with that? <laughs> That she tries to say that people who believe our rights come from God are a special sect of Christianity is an amazing level of ignorance. And that, you know, obviously the Declaration of Independence. We, we were endowed by somebody. I don't know who yes. it was. We're looking into it. And so but I think there's really actually something very pernicious going on here, which is an effort. And they, they always say, oh, well, it's not all Republicans. It's just a mega Republicans I'm coming after. It's not all Christians. It's just those who believe in natural law and those who believe that our, our rights come from God, they are Christian nationalists. Heidi Presbola, the commentator making that little monologue there, she obviously thinks that Christian nationalists are dangerous. She says that. Right. And Christian nationalism has no place in an American democracy. But her definition of Christian nationalism includes most Christians, all mainstream Christian teaching, a lot of Jewish people, a lot of Muslim people. Right. Most religious people in America, in her mind, unless if they hold any view that she rejects, like a pro-life view, they are they have no place in American democracy. So it's actually a slightly fascistic term yeah. to justify her trying to say religion has no place in the public square. And you are one of the things that I like about you, one of the things that I think makes you a good journalist. You have lots of progressive friends. Oh, yeah. You live, I don't know what your neighborhood's like now, but I assume it's not a Trump- we have uh, we have Ukraine flags and in this house we believe yard yeah. signs in our neighborhood. Yes. And and you grew up in New York City and you are very conversant and very knowledgeable about how secular humanistic atheists think and feel about things. You are friends with people like that, you engage with them in a respectful way. It makes your writing better. It makes you a better journalist because you are able to see the world through other people's eyes. And I don't want to come down too hard on Presbyla because I don't 
I don't know. I I, mm-hmm. I simply don't. I don't know what her body of work fully reflects. But when I heard this, I just thought, oh, you don't know anybody. No. And it's a it's a advantage that conservatives in the media have. Yeah. That it's impossible to have your job or my job without having liberal friends. And again, you said it. I grew up in Greenwich Village. I lived in Montgomery County. I live in Fairfax County now. I went to a liberal arts college. It, it, we were blessed with being exposed to opposing views, which makes us makes it harder for us to hold stupid opinions, yep. makes it easier for us to make good arguments. Not to say I don't hold stupid opinions or make bad arguments, but that she was not blessed by our creator <laughs> for right. some reason with uh, interlocutors who can say, actually, no, w- w- th- this idea of natural law, this idea that our rights from fr- come from God, it's very normal. This is what it means. It's not the same as Christian nationalism. It's so easy to climb up the liberal media uh, ladder without being exposed to other views. This is one of the things our friend Julie Mason, we talked about yes. earlier, she is great about. She absolutely just so frustrated at her liberal journalist friends who have no understanding of the other side. And if you were about to write a piece about Black Lives Matter and you were going to make broad assertions about what the Black Lives Matter movement is or isn't, it would occur to you, you would say, I should talk to a black person probably, yeah. right? I should probably... A part of my work here should be in talking to a black person. And I will call one of my black friends and ask them about this. If she would have had just one mm-hmm. Christian or Jewish or Muslim friend to call and say, you take this stuff pretty seriously, right? If she'd have picked up the phone, if she'd have called Yuval Levin and said, <laughs> Yuval, my man, what's going on with this whole our rights come from God? And the next thing you know, she'd be taken away. She'd be riding a magic carpet yep. into Edmund Burke. It would be a whole. It would be a whole great thing. She'd be. She'd be back at City of God, City of Man, talking about Augustine of Hippo before she knew it, <laughs> and it would be great. Her. She'd walk away with a different understanding of Aristotle. It would have been lovely. But instead, she saw a thing and she connected the dots because she lives in a vacuum. Speaking of which, I will be brief with my obsession as the time as as time runs on. But my obsession is I have the most solipsistic both obsession and favorite item this week because they're both about me. Me. And I just wanted to put in here the piece that I wrote for the Dispatch, Llamas, Life Online, and Lessons Learned about this week was the nine-year anniversary of the llamas <laughs> who got ran amok in Sun City, Arizona. And it was a delightful day in the TV biz because we heard on Twitter, hey, these llamas, look at these llamas. And the whole national media stopped in a very pleasant moment on a February <laughs> afternoon. And we watched these llamas, Cocknita and Laney, the llama, one black llama, one white llama, helicopters overhead like it was they were OJ and Al Cowlings. And it was great. And it's a piece about what we learned since then. And Megan McArdle, the great Megan McArdle, has done lots of good work on this. Lots of people have done good work on this. I'm not saying anything new, but I am saying that as journalists... And this is why I included here as journalists. This is a good moment as we're about to plunge into the general election, what we've learned about what life online is like, what we're like. And basically the, the, pre, the what I my assertion is when social media arose. So 2015, when we get to 65 percent of Americans mm-hmm. who are have social uh, adults have social media accounts, there were two particular groups of obsessive users of social media, particularly Twitter elites journalists, corporate people, blah, 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 those people. And then at the other end were, and were weirdos, but then there were other weirdos at the other end, people who in a different age 
would have only been allowed to say things to annoy their family members, annoy people at bars, yep. write letters to the editor, call in to talk radio shows. And they didn't, they suddenly have a platform. And what happened was we became obsessed with each other, right? We, out of a very small population of people, really, right? Elites became obsessed with obsessive weirdos and obsessive weirdos fixated on elites. And in this lumpy distribution of social media addicts, I guess the, the, the simplest way I can put it is social media distortion of our politics did not happen to us in the media. It happened through us yep. in the media. We were accelerators, vehicles, and one of our the tropes that we have on this show is we talk about the took-to-Twitter phenomenon, where you see a piece where you would have actually enjoyed this one. A couple weeks ago, Newsweek had an article, conservatives are furious about an ad in the Super Bowl about yeah. Jesus washing people's feet. And I thought, feet, and I thought, that seems odd that there would be so many conservatives upset. And then I opened up the article. What was in the article? A bunch of tweets. Yeah. It was just a bunch of tweets. It was just a lazy collection of tweets from weirdos. And it's like, boy, conservatives really hate the idea of Jesus watching, washing black people's feet. It's like, did anybody call a smart person? Did anybody see if this was a more broad-based phenomenon? No. You just went on social media and did it. So it didn't happen to us. It happened through us. That's exactly right. I used to, when I was a commentary editor at the Examiner, I used to tell my people, if you want to write about libs behaving badly, it can't be just libs on Twitter. Right. It's usually they should be behaving badly on TV or in print. Yes. And the only exception I'll give for the people doing it, behaving badly on Twitter is if they are people who also appear yes, on exactly. TV. Yes, that, exactly. That we can... But even that, like in, in certain times, I'm like, no, I don't want Joy Reid's bad tweets. Keith I want Oberman. Them... You, you won't believe what Keith Oberman said, yes. why he won't wipe his bottom. <laughs> okay. This brings us to Eliana's favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. Okay, here we go. This is from Nick Newfield in Kansas City, Missouri. Hola, Chris. You mentioned on the last episode of the recent trend of churches to, oh, oh, I knew, I should have known I would get in trouble for this, a trend of churches to rebrand, rename themselves to seem hip and fresh, hit a little close to home, particularly the example you proffered. In the span of maybe five years, I was a member of a half-century-old Baptist church that rebranded itself Graceway. And moved another hundred, moved to another hundred and fifty-year-old Baptist church. The church shortly rebranded itself. Connection, Connection point. point. So your hypothetical Grace Point managed to <laughs> deftly skewer both. Perhaps an AI hipster church name generator can be built to at least increase the variety and uniqueness of church names. Love the show and your work on the Dispatch, Mister Newfield. I, everybody, Tim. Tim is a. Intense. When I, when I said that he was full of potatoes and incense inside, <laughs> I meant that he is. It was not hippie incense. No, I, I meant that Tim is a is an intentional, devoted, serious Catholic in the traditional mold, and and is means it. And I am not. I am enthusiastic of through a half a millennia of Protestantism. <laughs> It's a very long protest, Chris. Yes, we've been we've been at it. Where you guys are still you're still <laughs> in there. You're still hanging around. We're looking for indulgences. But the just to to I I say all that to illustrate this point. As long as and, and this is not a theological podcast, but with Eliana not here, we'll take just this quick liberty to say: for me, as long as Christ is the head of the church, get down how you want to get down. You call it Grace Point. <laughs> you call it you call it you know Churchy McChurch face, whatever you want to call it. 
if you're if you're down with the Nicene Creed and Christ is the head of your church, you can have you can have a cappuccino bar at your church. You can do anything. You can have video screens. You can have a drum kit. You you do you. It's all good. I, for I'm me. happy. Any name, all the way from Saint Athanasius to the most precious blood. Any one of those. Any, are anything. Fine. You're yes. fine. You're <laughs> you're 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 real wide open. Okay, dear wretches. This is from Matthew L in Manhattan. The NYT's acerbic trashing of the recent Dior Yves Saint Laurent show in Paris is right up your alley. Probably hoping Eliana was here, weren't you, Matthew? We'll never see Chris in French fashion, no, and probably not Eliana either. I'm, by the way, today for those just listening, I'm dressed like the manager of a medium quality country club somewhere. It's not. I, I, I look, definitely look like I'm on staff today. Uh, I was thinking a high quality buffet restaurant. Okay, so. I'll take that. Right, the chocolate fountain. We'll never see Chris in French fashion and probably not Eliana either, at least not like this, but the clickbait head and the closing graph merit your attention. Let's see. The, I'll give you the headline first. <laughs> oh, you did it. You did it. New York Times Fashion Review. Breasts, comma, breasts, comma, everywhere. Saint Laurent and Dior offered two different versions of women's liberation. Neither was convincing. Breasts, breasts everywhere. Okay, women want to feel like a walking brand advertising as much as they want to stroll around flashing their <laughs> their knockers to the world. It's easy for me to give lip service to empowerment and liberation, tempting to use it as a marketing tool, but harder to define what it might actually look like. At least today, vice uh, ver versus sometime in the last century, maybe hopefully a designer will come up with a solution. That's the job after all. But sure, it isn't this. Uh, uh, Matthew, you provided there could not be a better way for us to get to the closing portion of the show as someone selling sex by talking about how people are selling sex. It's a New York uh, Times headline with a comma in it. it. It's fashion. You got it all. Matthew, you, you've, you've done it all. Uh, good for you. Which, of course, brings me to my favorite time of the week. Which is the kicker where we say something nice. We are sure to say something nice. And I lead by example, and I am the worst, truly the worst, and did not mean for it to work out this way. But on Sunday at 10 o'clock Eastern time, I will, in a very dubious series of choices made by the executives at News Nation, anchor the first episode of The Hill Sunday with Chris Steyerwalt, which is a public affairs. I do like that they call it a public affairs show. It feels tonier, feels... Like my chocolate fountain is a little more lavish, that the buffet spread is a little <laughs> that there that there's chilled lobster uh, tail on the buffet that I'm I'm wel welcoming you to, uh, but you we're going to include a link in the show notes, and I would just say we're not going to have very large viewership, and I don't usually do this, but please you figure out where you can watch it and please watch it so we can try to put a little number up so that we can try to make it success so that I do not make the, the, the regret that my bosses will surely feel for having me <laughs> be the extremely poor man's Tim Russert will not be as tragic as possible. So there I said it. I feel bad, but I, I want you to know I feel bad about saying it. You, on the other hand, have a great favorite item of the week. Well, first I say I will try to get my family to the 7.30 a.m. mass. Do it. And so the that kids we can are make gonna it out They're going to love me. time to watch Mr. Steyerwald. So just recently was the 93rd birthday of my old boss, Bob Novak, who passed away a little over a decade ago. And so Novak was, he was my second boss in DC. He's what I call my, my grad school, my journalism school. 
He was, and hopefully all your listeners know who he was, but he was a columnist for 50 years here in Washington, D.C. Who, uh, was, who was he? Tell, tell, tell them who he was, because Bob no- Novak is not a singular figure in the sense that throughout history, Washington journalism has had these influential writers and connectors and columnists and opinion people, but he was maybe the last one. Yeah. So he he wrote a column for 50 years. It was Evans and Novak together with Roland Evans for many, many years. And he was on the opinion page syndicated, but most famously in the Washington Post and the Chicago Sun-Times. He was on the opinion page, but every single column had previously unreported facts. Yes. And being a reporter and an opinion writer, the most important thing for me, who I got to work for him near the near the end of his career, was to see how his reporting changed his mind. So when he, they started off, their only opinion was that they were in favor of the Vietnam War and they were in favor of the civil rights movement and they were going to try to be neutral on everything else. Mm-hmm. But after a while, they started to say taxes are way too high. It's actually really bad. They couldn't avoid those sort of conclusions. He became pro-life. Eventually, he became Catholic. He helped bring me into the the Catholic Church. He became anti-war. And I was working for him when the Iraq war started up and we were called, he was called unpatriotic on the cover of the the National Review. Really? Yeah. Unpatriotic conservatives was a story that was largely about him being an opponent of the Iraq war. And, but again, he, he, one of the things he told me, he said, Tim, don't join the conservative movement. He said, Join lots of things, but politics should not be one of the things that you God join. Bless. Go out and make up your own mind on all this stuff. And how does he make up his mind? How did he make up his mind? It was by doing reporting, oh. learning learning facts and telling people facts they didn't yet know. So happy birthday in heaven, boss. To a to a Hall of Fame wretch. For Amen. A, a Hall of Fame ink stained wretch. And what good good advice. Stay wretched. Don't get into don't 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 try to be cool and don't try to be part of a movement. Be hang out with us. It's it's fun and it's weird over here, and we we make few demands of you. Okay, that is all the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Inkstained Wretches from Nebulous Media. It is produced by none other than Colin Chicola. Oh, yes. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Just search for wretches. 